You're listening to the podcast of Christ Church in Albuquerque, New Mexico. We hope these sermons help you to know God through Christ by deepening your belief in the gospel. Well, I can't believe that I'm starting a new sermon series today in my dining room here on Zoom Church, but here we are. The book of Colossians, Paul's letter to the Colossian church. Other than maybe First and Second Thessalonians, this may be one of Paul's most overlooked letters, which is just a crying shame because it's one of my favorite books in the whole Bible. It it'll perhaps lacks the reputation, though. Some of the famous bits of Paul that come from, say, like Romans or Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians. But this short four-chapter letter will change your life. I'm, I'm confident of it. So I'm really pumped to begin walking down the steps as we enter the pool here tonight. The first eight verses that you heard Tara read act very much as an introduction. So we'll treat it as such tonight. But even the introduction packs a powerful theological punch. So there's much here. Much of Colossians is about transformation. It's about the glory of Christ, which transforms his people. And so we'll use this theme of transformation to hang our thoughts in three sections tonight. Transform status lives and power. So let's first think about transformed status. The first verse of this letter begins very much like all letters of the day began, whereas we tend to start our letters or an email with the person or the people that we're addressing, and then we only sign our name at the very end. Paul and other letter writers of the day would sign his name right off the top. Who is writing this thing and why? Well, it is Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. This Paul who was once known as Saul, was a Jewish religious conservative. He's a Pharisee who was trying to crush the early movement known as Christianity by persecuting and killing all the folks in Jerusalem who were claiming that Jesus was the Christ. Uh, Not that these Jews in Jerusalem are saying that they had converted to a new religion or something, and so Saul is trying to like stop this mass defection from Judaism, but they were saying that all of the hopes and the promises of God had found their end and fulfillment In this crucified carpenter, they claimed that he was resurrected to new life, that he ascended to heaven and then poured out his Holy Spirit onto those who had believed. And Saul thought of this as heresy and he wanted it crushed until the formerly dead carpenter then revealed himself as the resurrected God of glory to Saul himself. Now known as Paul, Jesus had deputized Paul with authority to teach and to preach and to begin new churches. He was added among the other other apostles with this early first-generation authority. And so now, along with his young pastoral protege, Timothy, Paul is writing this letter to the Colossians from prison, as we'll find out in chapter 4. We're not exactly sure when or where this imprisonment is. Paul was imprisoned multiple times, but based on timelines and the people he mentions, it seems perhaps most likely that Paul and Timothy are writing this from an imprisonment in Ephesus, still early along in his ministry, perhaps sometime in the early 50s. So that's Paul. We'll have plenty more to consider about him as we go. But who are these Colossians that he's writing to? When I was a really little kid, before I could read, I couldn't figure out why Paul would write a letter to or about rain boots. There's Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, and Galoshes. But these aren't rain boots. These are people. A Colossian is just any person who lives in the city of Colossae. Colossae was in Asian, Asia Minor, it's just present-day Turkey. And uh, this is, this is uh, on the Turkish Peninsula. The right up river uh, of the Meander River and the Lycus River is next door to one of the seven churches of Revelation, uh, Colossae's neighbor, Laodicea. 
And a couple of interesting things here. Paul actually never went to Colossae. He's never met these people in Colossae. Only as we'll see, he's heard of their faith and he's concerned that they are being led away from the finished work of Christ. Also, in the year 61 or 62, there's a giant earthquake that just levels the city of Colossae and it's never rebuilt. Presumably, all the survivors left that city and moved on, maybe to Laodicea. The reason why that church is so prominent a few decades later in Revelation. And so Paul says to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae. Our English word saints perhaps isn't the most helpful. We immediately think of a Catholic or Orthodox saints, like the super ultra Christians who maybe even had some miraculous healing power or something, either that or Drew Brees. But the word is actually just holy ones. It says to the holy ones and the faithful brothers. So maybe you're thinking, oh, he, so he is writing to the super ultra Christians. But that's not what's going on. Holy ones appears a lot of places in the Old Testament. But in Psalm 89.5, we read, Let the heavens praise your wonders, O Lord, your faithfulness in the assembly of the holy ones, of the saints. This Hebrew word for assembly will be the same word that in Greek will later be used for the church, the, the church of the holy ones, the church of the saints, the assembly of the holy ones. But in Psalm 89, there's more than just a church service going on. This, the, the assembly is that of the heavenly council. This is the angelic and divine beings who are, who are swirling in God's presence. They are like him and they are praising him. This is the understanding of saints in the New Testament. Those who have been brought up and transformed. They have passed from spiritual death to spiritual life. They have been changed and transformed. They have been forgiven, cleansed, and seated with Christ on high. They are with God. They are surrounded by and folded up into the great cloud of witnesses who have gone before them. These Christians, they are in Colossae. They are in a physical location, but they are also somewhere else. They are in Christ. In fact, in the Greek, it actually reads, thank, thankfully we have English interpreters to make it a little bit more readable for us in modern English, but originally Paul says to, in Colossae, the holy ones and faithful brothers in Christ. It's like their two locations, in Colossae and in Christ, are the two sides of a balanced scale. They are located truly and really by faith in Christ, who rules and reigns above. They've been transformed to be with him. But also now they are still members of a real and particular place, this river city with people and with actual problems. So we're going to be talking about status change for like the next two months. So let's keep moving. But I think the pump now has been sufficiently primed. Paul is writing to the Colossians who have experienced a transformed status. But that status has then produced transformed lives. Verse 3, he goes on to say, we always thank God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Paul says, we always thank God. We, meaning not just Paul and Timothy, but as we'll find out, Epaphras and Aristarchus and Mark and Justice and Luke and Demas, they're all there. Some of them imprisoned with Paul, praying in thankfulness for the Colossians. Others or other than Epaphras, Epaphras, who is actually a Colossian, none of these guys potentially know anyone in Colossae. They may have never been to this town. They may never will go in their entire lives. And yet they are regularly praying for them. Why? Well, because they've, they've heard of the Colossian faith, the Colossian love, and the Colossian hope. Their faith in Christ Jesus. Their love for all the saints. Their hope, which is laid up in heaven. And this isn't to just say that they're, these people are like especially nice and 
kind people, though that may be true. It's not that Paul heard about this city in Turkey where everything had turned into Mayberry or something. People were just now all of a sudden out and about taking each other pies and waving at each other as they all came to patient complete stops at all the four-way stop signs. I'm sure that they were becoming kind and patient. We'll have much more to think about there in chapter three, but faith and love and hope aren't just like Hallmark movie virtues. They aren't just squishy and emotional fondness for everything in the world. No, Paul identifies their faith in Christ. This is a specific faith, not just a faith generally, not just a universal love for the world, but their love specifically for all the saints and their hope, which is in heaven. So they don't just have faith, especially the way that we Americans tend to talk about faith. Yeah, well, you know, my, my faith is really important to me. Well, your faith in what? Oh, you know, just my faith. It doesn't really matter what faith you have, just as long as you believe in something. Well, that doesn't make any sense. Most Americans consider themselves religious or spiritual in some sense, but their faith is really just in faith. There's nothing too specific about it. It's just faith. There is no object. And the world in which Paul is writing isn't a whole lot different. It's Middle Earth out there. There are competing cultures and values and deities. But for the most part, these cultures, values, and deities aren't in necessarily open war with each other. They're just all thrown into a blender to just become just whatever, man. Like the Roman Empire is completely fine with you believing whatever you want, just as long as you don't get too serious or too exclusive about your beliefs. But Paul is thankful for their very specific, serious, and exclusive faith in Christ Jesus. One New Testament scholar has recently suggested that the way that we should understand faith is not as that of a, an emotional feeling, but of allegiance. The Colossians have transferred their ultimate allegiance, the umbrella category of their life, their way of being to King Jesus, the ruler of the cosmos and the ruler of their lives, to the absolute exclusion of other gods and competing allegiances in their lives. Or another way to put it, in what or in whom do I put my ultimate trust? Over the past two weeks, maybe our ultimate trust is being exposed a bit. Maybe we thought our faith was deeply in Christ Jesus, and maybe we even want it to be. But maybe our faith was actually in a growing and robust economy, and what that means for my personal wealth, my financial security. Maybe my trust was in a job or my status as a student. Now all that's gone. I'm, I'm not sure what my identity really is. Maybe my sense of security was in friends or leisure or entertainment. Now I can't even leave my house. I can't do the things that I want to do. I can't be with the people that I want to be with. But the kind of well-known faith that Paul would have heard about is a people who would have said, everything about my life, I'm banking on the reality of an empty tomb. In fact, nothing in my life makes sense apart from an empty tomb. All my hope my trust, my deepest sense of security comes from Jesus who loves me and gave himself for me, no matter what else comes or goes. Now, there's much more here throughout Colossians, but this is a little different. Faith is a little different than just a calligraphy print that we might hang on our wall that says faith or the way we think about faith, football and food or something. So he's thankful for their specific faith in Christ Jesus, but he's also thankful, Paul is, for their love for all the saints. Yes, it can be assumed that they are 
loving the world and their unbelieving neighbor well, but they are particularly loving and caring for the others whom God has called into the same family. They are caring for the saints, the church, the holy ones of Christ. We've already seen Paul use family language, calling people that he's never even met. He called them brothers in verse 2. But he is thankful for their care for one another, just like we intuitively care for the needs of our our own immediate and extended family. Like it would be disgraceful for me if I left my own kids hungry and destitute because I was giving all of my time and money to go serve and provide for the hungry of Albuquerque. And in the same way, especially in this time of pandemic, we, we want to care for and provide for those in the city who are really struggling. But first, caring for the needs of us, for our own particular people. And that's not a selfish or self-protective move. We, we can't care for the city unless we are all cared for first. We all can't do it unless we have our needs first met. Paul is thankful to God that the Colossian church is not living in selfish self-preservation and advancement, but he was hearing for hearing of their love for all the saints. This is not just a general affection or fuzzy love that they might have, some inner emotion. Paul wouldn't have heard of that if that's all they had just lying in their hearts. No, he is likely hearing of the actual ways that they are practically caring for one another. And like Paul, I am overwhelmingly thankful to God to hear of how this is already happening amongst us in these initial two or three weeks. Keep it up. Check in regularly with one another. Send a text or an email to folks in your GC about something that you've learned about God from his word or something that you've recently read in a book. Stay aware of each other's needs and meet them, even keeping us aware as these needs become greater. We want to help and care for you as your pastors, and so keep us aware in how we can care for one another as a church. So he's thankful for their faith and their love. And lastly, Paul is thankful for their hope, which is laid up in heaven. We'll save most of these thoughts for later in the book, but the Colossians have not put their hope in this age, not put their hope in this reality of getting and keeping everything that they can in this life so that they might never have any problems or ever have any worries. No, their hope is in the age to come. Their allegiance is to King Jesus, whom they believe will return and make all things new. As while we have experienced individual times of loss and uncertainty in our lives up to this point, there there perhaps has never been a time of more uncertainty and anxiety in any of our lifetimes. 9-11, maybe, but I think we're already eclipsing that uncertainty. For those of you who lived through the Cold War, there were times of elevated and intense fear, but that was mostly just a decades-long, low-level dread. But this is getting intense out there. Thankfully, because of our geographic isolation from much of the rest of the country and decisive leadership at local and state levels, we may not experience the catastrophic physical effects of this pandemic like we've been seeing in New York this week or for what is undoubtedly coming for other regions in the coming weeks. But there is still so much unknown. There's unknown for the economy, unknown for your businesses, for your jobs, for your families, and on and on and on. But this week, I was so encouraged when I read Sam Albury, who wrote this week that the best advice he received when he was a young Christian was this. He wrote, deal with what you don't know in the context of what you do know. Deal with what you don't know in the context of what you do know. Christian, do you know that God is kind and wise and good? Do, do you know that his grace is sufficient for you today? 
Do you know that Christ has loved you enough to live and to die with your name and with your circumstances in mind? Do you know that he will not leave you nor forsake you? Do you know that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord? Then put on all of these promises of God as you begin each day of uncertainty. Deal with what you don't know in the context of what you do know. Or as Sam Albury went on to say, what God has given us is enough to help us cope with what he hasn't given us. He has given us enough. We have hope in an age to come and a God who is there. And Paul is hearing of and is thankful to God for this hope that the Colossians have. So God has given the Colossians transformed status that has led to transformed lives. And all of this has come through, finally, a transformed power. After telling them of his thankfulness for their faith and their love and their hope, Paul goes on to say in the second half of verse 5, he says, Of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world as it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. So how did all this happen? How did God bring about transformed status and lives? Well, the word of truth, the gospel came to them and they heard and believed. The gospel is an announcement of King Jesus' reign and rule, his victory over sin and death. It is news that must be responded to, not not take it or leave it tips or suggestions for improved living. Like if you want to live a happier and healthier life, just make sure to eat healthy and exercise or make sure to go to church and read the Bible if you want to have a better life. These are things that you could add to your life or you could just choose to ignore. But this is not the gospel. At the risk of overdoing how often I've shared this with you, let me remind you of what Martin Lloyd-Jones once said. He said, here is a king, and he, he's giving us a word picture here to imagine. Here, imagine a king, and he goes into a battle against an invading army to defend, defend his land. If the king defeats the invading army, he sends back to the capital city messengers, a very happy envoy. He sends back good newsers with his report. They come back and they say, it's been defeated. It's all been done. Therefore, respond with joy and now go about your lives. Conduct your lives in this peace which has been achieved for you. But if the invading army breaks through, the king sends back military advisors and says, swordsmen over here and marksmen over here and the horsemen over there. We're going to have to fight for our lives. Every other religion sends military advisors to people. Every other religion says, you know, if you want your salvation, you're going to have to fight for your life. Every other religion is sending advice saying, here are the rights. Here are the rituals. Here are the laws and the regulations. Earthen works over here. Marksmen over there. You're going to have to fight for your life. The gospel comes as news of victory to the Colossians, like a, like a personified force of power and transformation and freedom. It is bringing and producing fruit there and all over the known world, like, like little gardens of Eden all over the world. There are now pockets of people being reconciled and once again dwelling with God, living in peace and bringing his peace to those around him. God is now doing in the gospel what he has always intended for the entire world, and he's doing it through messengers through heralds, through the good newsers, like Epaphras. We hardly know anything about Epaphras. We'll find out in chapter 4 that he's from Colossae. So at some point, 
He heard the universe-changing news report that Jesus of Nazareth rose from the dead, that he had brought about the forgiveness of sins and is bringing in a new age of his universal kingdom, that, that Jesus is the Christ. And he went back to his hometown of Colossae to share this news. And this message, when he arrived, this message had power. Like a, like a caged lion coiled up and ready to explode out of the cage. Or as Paul would say elsewhere in Romans 1, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Are you believing in this gospel? Are you believing in this message, this news report of power, of transformation? Is your universe under the kingship of Jesus? Does your allegiance belong to him? Are you being honest if you're ultimately for yourself or for your own kingdom? Are you being crushed under the anxiety or fear of not measuring up, not, not measuring up in the eyes of others or not measuring up in the eyes of God? Are you walking in the peace and the freedom of Jesus' life lived for you, of his death died for you, of his resurrection now become your new life by faith? And if so, are you making this known to those around you as his good newser? These are strange, strange times with severely limited contact with others. But take advantage of those small check-in conversations with your neighbors. Of course, six feet away on the sidewalk. But folks are more likely than ever to be thinking about things that matter, about loss and life and death and meaning and purpose. It isn't your words that have the persuasive power, but it is the gospel. The power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. And to echo, echo the sentiment of a, another pastor, we ought to be praying for millions in the world to one day say, I became a Christian during the coronavirus. Well, we're just getting started. Just getting started in this quarantine life and in this book. So just read Colossians a whole bunch over the next couple of months. And then come back to Zoom next week for verses 9 through 14. And let's just keep adding to what we do know about the person, about the work and the promises of Christ to comfort and shape us as we walk out and experience what it is that we don't know. Let us use what we do know to shape and inform what we don't. Let's pray that he would. Our Father, we pray that you would give us increased faith and love and hope. Help us to trust in the surety of Christ's work on our behalf, the surety of his return. Help that to inform and give us hope for the present in these times of uncertainty. Our Father, we pray that you would give us increased love for one another. We pray that you would bring about healing to the world. But we pray that you would bring much life and repentance. We pray that many, in fact, millions might come to faith in this time of pandemic, of loss, of uncertainty. We pray that you would do all of these things for the glory of the name of Christ. And in his name we pray. Amen. We hope you have been encouraged to deeper life in Christ through the preaching of this sermon. For more information about Christ Church, visit www.christchurchabq.com.